Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, a Mitrap podcast. What's new this week, Mike? Hey, not much. Glad we got something a little bit different today on our author series. Had a really good chat. So that's about it for me. How are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. Yeah, uh, I, oh, I did have one thing I wanted to ask you. Have you seen the Gray Man trailer? I haven't. They released an official trailer? No, it's not an official trailer. I, I forget what I was watching. Maybe it was during the Olympics. Okay. But ne- Netflix had this like super hype video of all their 22 movies uh, and like the Gray Man, the, there was like a, you know, I guess part of the teaser trailer was in there. Maybe maybe 20 seconds of it. I think I did see that then. I, I was watching something in the background. I was like, wait, was that Gray Man? And then it just f- flipped to something else. It was like a montage right. of different yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was it. That was it. Yeah. Well, I, we talked about it before. Ryan Gosling, kind of like him. I just, mm, I look at him, I think, I don't know, not a rom-com, but I think of like Nicholas Sparks or something. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to transition from seeing him in that role to seeing him as an action badass. But Yeah, but you've seen him in Drive. You've seen him in Place Beyond the Pines. Like. He's got it. I haven't seen that second one, but yeah, he's got it. He's got it. I just, I don't know. I have to drop my biases and come with an open mind. Yeah, it looks interesting. I hope they drop like an official official trailer of it whenever it comes out or closer to when it comes out. It was it was interesting to see him because he's lo- also looking at the kid ca- because like every single character in these movies like breaks the fourth wall, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like so. But um, yeah, the footage looks cool. It's like some he's on a train in some European country, it looks like. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of excited for that. I, I forgot to look into it. I, I think they're going with the storyline of the first book, the original book. I, okay, I, can't I haven't remember. read it yet. I really want to read them. I got one for the first one for Christmas. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. I've only read, I want to say two or three, definitely the first one. And I, I totally forgot what the other ones were, but if it's the storyline of the first book, that's pretty compelling. That's a good one to make into a movie. A lot of stuff goes down, I'll put it that way, and you very quickly, you very quickly establish that this guy's got skills. Do you remember, is there a scene on a train in Europe or something? Uh, I can't remember exactly. The The most memorable scene is basically the culmination of the the plot is an attack on a dwelling in the countryside. So that could right, definitely right. make sense. Right, right. That definitely makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it didn't look like an American you know, Amtrak, it looked like a Eurostar. But speaking of TV shows, the other thing I wanted to bring up was, have you gotten a chance to check out Reacher? No, but man, the internet is blowing up. Have you watched it? Yeah, so I wasn't going to watch it right away. But then, so I listened to this, this the Watch podcast. So it's it's on um, two of these guys I follow from The Ringer. And all they do is discuss TV. And I was so shocked when... Pretty much Mondays, they go two days a week, Monday and Thursdays. Monday's pod was ninety percent about Reacher and just about how how much they love it. And none of them, none of them had read the books at all. They don't know, like, but all, they did their research and they know that unlike Tom Cruise, this guy who's from like the teen teen. I remember I watched him with my my dad watches that show Titans on HBO, and this guy's been a superhero. He was like Smallville's like Aquaman or something like that. This guy's huge. Yeah. And apparently they're doing it really true to the book, and That's it, what it's I really good. People are going bananas for that show, 
And you don't often get an entire community of thriller fans united in saying, this adaptation is well done to the books. You don't get that often. And almost everyone I've heard who's a Lee Child fan is over the moon about this series. Yeah, and it you could tell he, he Lee Child's an executive producer on this. I didn't realize that that's not his, that's not his real name. Uh, that's a, that's a, a pen name. Um, but yeah, no, it's Killing Floor was a really good book, and it, when it gets hit, just his physical presence, uh, we we haven't done we haven't done anything about Reacher yet, but maybe, maybe we could do the Killing Floor, and the way he writes about Reacher and how he just has these imposing stares and like, mm. uh, you know, he doesn't answer questions when he's asked. And apparently, I mean, and from what I've seen, so I'm not, I'm like three episodes in, they get that. And, you know, from wh- however they're shooting this thing, you just get the fact that this guy, you know, is, is this immense presence that Tom Cruise did not convey. Right. And the other thing that's great about it is, you know, this is Amazon, right? So, they have all the money in the world. They could right. have done it where they, you know, you have this amazing car chase and then there's boom, bang, bang, you know, huge car crash. But instead, it's actual just, no, let's, all right, there's a car chase. And then the guy pulls over, he gets out and he punches him in the face. Like, it's that's what's in the story. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it, I don't know. For some reason, I feel like there's no reason why every single streamer can't do this to right. some series. Right. You know? This is going to be the catalyst. I the the momentum behind this series it's a catalyst. I think it's going to crack open the thriller to screen adaptation to be done not in Hollywood's way but in the author's way or at least to right. value the author's voice and craft. I think it's a catalyst because like we saw with American Assassin Hollywood and the screenwriters and and the production crews, they want to hijack the story. They don't want to tell the story the author wrote. They want to buy the rights to it, sell the name of the character, but tell you their own story visually and plot-wise. I'm getting good vibes from this, good vibes from Gray Man, good vibes from The Terminalist, that something's shifting, that that these are the, the catalysts that are going to get this right and create momentum for more on-screen adaptations of thrillers. You you could see where in a world, you know, any one of these three sort of, or, you know, two of these three fail, then you never get something like this ever again. Exactly. But I think the opposite is going to happen. I agree with you that, you know, Reacher's killing it. You know, the gray man looks sick and people are saying it's going to be good. Terminalist, you know, Jack Carr's been brought in. You know, again, he's an executive producer on this thing, or I don't know if he's an official executive producer, but you know, he's an advisor being involved. Yeah, and you know, it's you know, it only gives one hope that they can do this from a trap. There's no reason why HBO can't have one of these, or fuck Amazon. Amazon is a book company, you know, at heart, like or not at heart, but like that's what they started out as, and so it makes sense that they would. Apparently, the Wheel of Time series that came out last year, fans are fans loved it. I'm sure there's like a sect, you know, sci-fi is like its own community, but the fans that I know that have read that, they actually enjoyed it, you know, and they yeah. they didn't try to make something that was for everybody. They they made something for the fans and with the idea that all right, more people may come to this, you know. I'm really hoping they they kill it out of the park with Lord of the Rings. We'll see. 
Oh, yeah. Ah, I mean, I think there's I like a billion dollars spent on that show yet there already. It's the, I believe, the most expensive uh, streaming series ever made, if I'm not mistaken. I'm a little nervous. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it seems they're doing the right things, but that's just a series that is really, really difficult to get right and really, really difficult to match what the films already have given to us. So, yeah. It, Chris, if Ted know. Lasso taught us anything, it's the hope that kills you. So I, I hope we're not going to have our our dreams crushed here and Reacher's a one-off and everything else bombs. I don't think it's happening, but it's the hope that kills you, man. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and the, the Harry Potter series is, is like ramping up. So I don't want we'll our see. expectations we'll to be too high. Someone needs to do a Mitch Rap series. Someone needs to do a Scott <sighs> Harvard series. Oh, I know, I know. We need redemption for that movie, that awful, <sighs> that god-awful movie. Like, the reader base of Vince Flynn is really great, and the ones who are in it are in it. We kind of attract new readers. You know, people pass books to friends, family. You know, you give somebody one book, they're going to buy the whole series if they actually read it. You know, you you can hook people. But the movie was an opportunity to reach such a wider audience. Such a wider audience, and it and it didn't do it. It didn't get there. So, we need some redemption. You're right. That movie was a success. We're probably we're probably not the ones here doing this podcast. Uh, yeah, good point. Good point. <laughs> there would have been eighteen of us, <laughs> but yeah, they would have exactly. all been about the movie. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Anyways, that's that's. I just wanted a quick quick little aside here before we get to the meat of our episode. But yeah, yeah. Well, the meat of our episode is uh. Getting here was a bit convoluted. Oh, yes. <laughs> want, yes. Getting here was convoluted. You want to tell the people what happened on our first two recordings of this interview? Yeah. So the first time we sat down to record, uh, we had some technical issues with getting uh, our author's audio. And then so the second time, uh, I couldn't I couldn't be there. So Mike interviewed Chris by himself. And you, that's what you're going to hear. But Mike's mic just... I don't know. Something happened to your mic, and luck- luckily, your your computer picked picked up some recordings, so you have something to listen to. But right. I don't think that. Um, yes, we had a little audio audio difficulties, but the the episode is a very good episode. You know, Chris is a great guy. I think you guys are going to really love this book. It's called A White Star in a Red Sky. Different concepts, some historical fiction. Highly recommend you guys going out, giving it a chance, giving it a try. So yeah. All right, guys, today we do something a little bit different. We welcome on a special guest from a slightly different genre and different background than the thrillers we usually cover. Fantastic book, White Star in a Red Sky. So welcome, Chris Berman. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's really a pleasure. Yeah, great. I really enjoyed your book, and I don't often read historical fiction, but it was such a, a gripping narrative and a great time period in history. I got right into it, felt like I was reading a thriller with action on every page. Can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your book and where it came from? Well, thank you very much. Actually, the book came from an idea I had when I was, um, I was finishing up my master's degree in military history. My thesis on, 
was women pilots of the USSR. Because I was with a lot of people in the West, um, you're surprised to hear that um, during World War II, the Soviets had quite a number of women uh, fighter pilots, bomber pilots, and uh, um, uh, also in other areas of the service, they had infantry infantry, uh, snipers. Uh, They had tank commanders. Um, So I did a lot of work on that. And I often thought to myself, gee, would it be interesting if, if, one of our WAFs pilots are, um, you know, uh, American women who flew aircraft in the Second World War um, as service pilots, where they would bring planes from the factories to staging areas for um, other pilots to pick up and fly into combat. Wouldn't it be interesting if one of them actually could fly into combat with, uh, with, their their Soviet counterpart. And uh, that's how the idea for the story began. And um, I can give you, without giving too much away about the story, I can just read to you the back cover, uh, which everybody would see anyway if they got the book. It says, two young women flying for their countries will form a lasting bond friendship forged in the crucible of war. Angela Moretti is a 19-year-old American WAFs ferry pilot, bringing Lend-Lease P-39 Air Cobra fighters to Alaska for Russian pilots to fly into battle. Angela lives with a terrible pain in her soul. Her kid brother has been executed by the Nazi SS. No one understands her thirst for revenge except Katya Lianova, a Red Air Force fighter pilot her own age, whose own family was murdered by the Nazis. Their shared tragedies will bring these two women together in friendship with a quirk of fate, sending them together into battle over Russia. Concealing Angela's true identity, the women will fight the Nazi invaders over Kursk in the greatest land and air battle in history and learn through an unexpected ally that forgiveness triumphs over hate and revenge. So that's actually the the meat of the story. And... um, one of the things that I do as an author is, um, you know, I will reach out to other authors for comments, blurbs, etc. And um, I don't know, are, are you familiar with uh, the author, uh, best-selling author Taylor Anderson? No. Taylor Anderson writes a series called The Destroyer Men, and it's an interesting series. It's it, it it's a World War II series, um, but it's set in an set on an alternate Earth. Uh, During a pitched battle in the Pacific, an American destroyer and a Japanese cruiser suck through some space dimension and wind up on an Earth. But it's not it's not this Earth. It's an alternate Earth. With different sorts of uh, that had uh, evolved into uh, into intelligence and uh, Taylor Anderson. He's got like eight books, and I've read most of them. Uh, and uh, he was really one of my favorite authors. And uh, I sent him the manuscript, asked him would he comment on. And uh, Taylor Anderson wrote, uh, "Chris Berman's A White Star in a Red Sky checks all the important boxes and fires on all twelve cylinders of the Allison engine in Angela Moretti's two infrequently featured Bell P39 Air Cobra." And Angela is not only likable, 
admirable and well-defined with, with uh, good motivations. Chris Berman creates just about the only believable scenario in which a strong-willed female American pilot could fly in desperate combat during one of the biggest, fiercest, and most pivotal battles in human history. Finally, I cared about what happened to Angela and those around her. I even cared about what happened to her plane. Taylor Anderson, New York Times bestselling author. Wow, okay, that's so it's, an honor. It, it's nice to get that. Right. That's some great feedback because Angela is such a memorable character in what she goes through and her dedication to the mission, to seeking justice and revenge for what the Nazis have done to her family and the way she uses her skills as a pilot. I mean, I'm a history teacher. You know, Mm -hmm. World War II, we talk about Lend-Lease, but we don't have a personal story of how the supplies, the planes, the ships we were sending were used. Or we'd hear about women on the home front, uh, victory gardens and other ways they might have given back, but all domestic. Well, she actually takes a step forward and uses her piloting skills to get involved and to join up with the Soviets. And that, that's just fascinating to see that level of involvement from one of our women. Yeah. And she is she is really surprised when um, Katya tells her, she says, oh, I'm a combat pilot with six victories. And she's, she's like, Really? Yeah, can you get into that as a military historian? How were the Soviets using women in combat roles and why were they doing that? And what did that show about the difference in philosophy of how they were fighting the Eastern Front and we were fighting, helping on the the Western Front? This was an incredible, desperate uh, situation for the Russians and, uh, you know, the whole Soviet Union, Russia and Ukraine and Belarus. Those were the areas that were, were mostly affected and invaded um, by the Germans. Uh, uh, they had amassed uh, something like 3,000 aircraft, uh, 2,500 tanks, uh, 2.5 million men on the Soviet border uh, in July of 1940, uh, I'm sorry, June of 1941. And on June 22nd at about four in the morning, they came pouring across. First thing they did was was completely devastate um, uh, the Soviet Air Force. Uh, they took out something like 4,200 planes. Most of them were destroyed on the ground. The ones that got up uh, were it, of inferior design, and they could not compete against the German, uh, the Messerschmitt uh, 109s at that time. Also, their combat ta- tactics, Russian combat tactics for air uh, air combat were very poorly thought out. They were still using the same uh, tactics that pilots used in World War I. Um, so it was a desperate situation and they lost a lot of pilots and a lot of planes, but they were producing more and more aircraft east of the Urals, uh, just churning them out of factories and they needed more pilots. So uh, it was uh, Marina Roskova who was a uh, sort of a, a Russian Amelia Earhart, who's well-decorated uh, uh, pilot, uh, went to the leadership and she said, listen, we have thousands of women uh, who have pilot's license, who can fly. Um, I'd like to establish uh, a regiment of, of um, uh, fighter pilots, bomber pilots, and night bomber pilots. And it was agreed to, and um, thousands of uh, Thousands of women served. As a matter of fact, um, at the height of the war, there were something like 10 million Soviet troops 
8% of that were women. And they were not just in support roles, they were in combat roles. Um, particularly interesting uh, were the, uh, the ones known as the night witches. Um, they would fly their, um, they really, the Russians had a lot of these aircraft. They were called a PO2. Uh, they were a light uh, twin seat biplane, canvas and wood. Uh, but they would use them to bomb and harass uh, German uh, facilities and forces at night. Um, they would fly in, cut their engines, glide over their target and drop their bombs, quickly turn around and go back to their bases and refuel and rearm. Uh, those women were flying something like anywhere from 12 to 18 sorties a night. Uh, some of them uh, flew over 800 combat missions. The thing with the uh, thing with the Red Air Force too was that uh, uh, unlike well you you read about the American forces like the bomber forces the B seventeen they would rotate their pilots out after a certain number of missions you know if you were flying for the Red Air Force uh, you flew until the war was over or until you got killed there was no rotating out would you say those sorts of desperate measures, what the night witches were doing in these canvas, you know, biplanes or two seaters, uh, even landing on these kerosene lamp lit runways. Is that kind of the desperation and all in effort that would turn the tide of a battle like Kursk? Was it a technical advantage? Was it a manpower advantage? Just the number of bodies they had? What would you say is one of the main deciding factors there. Well, the interesting thing about Kursk is that even a lot of the German high command uh, said Hitler was making a big mistake to try to do this. Um, he had the Germans had lost something like uh, 250,000 men at Stalingrad. And six months later, um, uh, Hitler says, I'm going to avenge St Stalingrad. I'm going to cut off the Soviet armies at Kursk because they had formed a bulge coming out into uh, the areas that were being occupied by the Germans. So you got so you put together, it was called Operation Citadel. And they brought in uh, something like uh, uh, one and a quarter uh, million men. They brought in uh, about 1,200 tanks, uh, 2,500 aircraft. Um, but the thing was that they, they brought in the types of equipment that didn't fare well in that environment. They rushed into production uh, two particular uh, fearsome tanks, the, uh, the Tiger and the, uh, the Panther tank. Both of them were excellent tanks, but they had real problems with uh, reliability, mechanical breakdowns, short range with fuel. And meanwhile, the Soviets were pumping out these T-34 tanks, thousands and thousands of them. As a matter of fact, if you look at these statistics, during the war, the Germans built 1,600 Tiger I uh, tanks. The Soviets built 55,000 T-34s. Um, it was more of a question of they, they simply overwhelmed the Germans with their numbers. And at that time, uh, those losses that the Germans were experiencing uh, could, not be, could not be recouped. It could not be made up. Um, it, so it was like for every, for every two aircraft, the Germans would lose 
they could replace it with one. Mm. For every aircraft the Soviets would lose, they could replace it with two or three. And the same thing was true with tanks. And the same thing was true with, with uh, just bringing in millions of soldiers. And it was, uh, you know, it was a question of just overwhelming them. Right. And that's the deciding factor, the numbers. And, and it wasn't, and that wasn't even it. Uh, in the height of the battle, the uh, American and British forces landed in Italy. And now all of a sudden, Germany is now facing a war from two fronts. Right, they're split. Uh, so on July 13th, Hitler e- issues an edict. He says, I'm canceling, um, I'm canceling Operation Citadel, and I want you to withdraw your troops from there and support uh, the forces in the West against the American and British that are coming through Italy. So at that point, uh, you could say, you could say really at that point, the war was over for Germany. Yeah. It was like they were badly wounded. They just wouldn't lay, de- lay down and die. It was amazing is all this detail that you obviously, you know, have as a, as a historian comes through in your book and not in an overwhelming way. Uh, it seamlessly works into the narrative of how the tide is shifting and why our heroes are able to do what they can do in the sky. And it, it's really neat to to read a book and and learn all this history. Uh, but it's a fiction story, so yeah. you've done a lot of writing. How did you how did you come to this point where you wanted to write a historical fiction book? Well, I had written a lot of science fiction, and my science fiction was what they call hard science fiction, which is very technical, very detailed, based on plausible technology. And most of that was set in the near future. Uh, One of the books was actually, uh, you'd almost call it like a uh, more of a techno thriller. Uh, It was called Red Moon, about uh, the Chinese uh, trying to establish dominance over uh, the Western nations in space by setting up a moon base, a secret moon base uh, with a special area on the far side of the moon where they could launch back to earth orbit uh, nuclear weapons and uh, basically interdict uh, anything coming out, coming up uh, into orbit from any country. And they could dictate the economic terms of who gets access to space, who gets access to those resources and who controls those resources. Um, And I had a lot of comments that said, you know, you're really on the money with this. This really sounds like something the Chinese would want to do. Yeah. It's not too much of science fiction. That's almost going to be current events. I can see in a, in a few years here, if not sooner. Yeah, because I had a I had a NASA a former NASA astronaut go through the uh, manuscript with me, and and he even uh, even uh, wrote the forward to the book, and he said he said you are you are absolutely on the money with this. You know, I wonder we track on the podcast the thriller genre pretty closely, and we've noticed a lot of your standard terrorist plot lines take place in the Middle East, extremists, the Russian plot lines, mm-hmm. you know trying to bring back the dominance of the Soviets in that era. I'm wondering where the Chinese are going to come into a lot of the thriller political genre writing, because that's uh, a threat that I feel like is largely untapped or unwatched in some ways. I mean, just look at the South China Sea. I haven't really read too many fiction books dealing with naval dominance in that part of the world. 
And like you, uh, space, that's not so much science fiction anymore. If we consider no, it's satellites. Not. The China, yeah, the Chinese are, are making a real effort to put, uh, put stuff down on the moon. Uh, they've put up a, a space station. Um, they've designed their, uh, their spacecraft to be mass produced. Um, and those spacecraft could, could easily be militarized with, uh, with weapon systems on them. So yeah, that's not too that's too not too far out of the uh, out of the realm of uh, possibility. Dale Brown, I don't know if you've read any of his stuff. Yes, uh, military fiction writer uh, wrote a a, a book called uh, I think it was called On Fatal Ground, which is one where the the Chinese strike against uh, Taiwan and they take out our base in Guam and take out an aircraft carrier group. And it's it's how an unprepared United States can fight back. Right. And it was a, it was a really that was a really good book. I, I like Dale Brown's stuff. I feel like the one or two Dale Brown books I read had a lot to do with planes, as your book did. This yeah, is yeah, often about planes. Yeah. Yeah. He's an Air Force guy. Gotcha. OK, I thought so. If I recall the, the couple that I read years back. Yeah. So where did, because in the book, another really technical piece that you learn a lot from and that you obviously have, have the chops to, to get into is the tech specs of the different planes. Oh, and sure. Where did that come from? Has that always been a passion of yours? Well, I've always been kind of a, a, a plane geek. I really, uh, I'm really big on, on uh, uh, World War II aircraft and, and later aircraft too. But um, there were certain the those particular planes, particularly the P thirty nine, was a really really interesting airplane because it was the first uh, aircraft uh, built in this country uh, that sat on a tricycle landing gear. Hmm. Uh, it had its engine behind the pilot, and that's because it was built around its weapon system. It carried a thirty seven millimeter cannon that fired through the nose, and it was a very pretty airplane it was very as a matter of fact i have i have one here okay wow nice that's actually the plane in in writing the book i made sure i built a model of the plane so i could understand how it looked from all aspects wow so that aircraft had one flaw it didn't have a second stage supercharger which limited it uh, limited combat effectiveness to altitudes below about 18,000 feet. Um, our pilots in the Pacific hated it because the Japanese uh, zeros could fly uh, well above that, up 20, 25,000 feet, and basically could dictate combat at that, those altitudes. But we sent 4,800 of them uh, to the Soviets, and the Russian pilots loved those planes. Uh, matter of fact, two of their top aces. Uh, uh, scored almost all of their uh, kills flying uh, American-made P-39s. Okay. Um, they were rugged. Uh, their 37-millimeter cannon could basically one hit would destroy a, uh, an enemy aircraft. Uh, they were fast. They were just as fast as the German Messerschmitts. Uh, they were maneuverable. And we built planes with good uh, pilot protection, sealed fuel tanks, armor plate around the seating and bulletproof glass, which uh, Soviet aircraft, they're just cranking them out, cranking them out, cranking them out. Um, they 
their uh, philosophy was overcome the enemy with numbers rather than with a, a, a high quality aircraft. The technology. Uh, even, even Stalin was quoted saying, uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. Mm, okay. Very Soviet uh, way of thinking too. Yeah. He also said one death is a, uh, is a tragedy, a million deaths are a statistic. Statistic. Yep. Statistic. I've heard that one. Yes. Yep. Yes. I, I wonder though, because there's a couple of authors who are plain geeks like you. And actually the first author we had on our podcast was Ward Larson. Uh-huh. He's a thriller writer. He writes the assassin series, highly recommend it. He was a pilot or is a pilot himself. And so it's really cool to hear how he works that into all of his novels. And his, one of his more recent books introduced drones. So being a plane geek, what's your take on unmanned vehicles moving forward and drone technology are you happy that that is possibly uh, the wave of the future in aerospace, or is that something that uh, you know kind of rubs you the wrong way? Well, I mean, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's going to be um, sort of an ancillary sort of uh, weapon system to manned aircraft, um, because a lot of what you're looking at with unmanned uh, unmanned drones with either AI or some sort of control system. Um, there are ways to defeat that. There are ways, to, you know, everybody knows, um, you know, a virus can get into your computer. Yeah, cyber attack. Um, something like that uh, could be, uh, it could actually be turned against, um, uh, you know, the side that's flying them. But the, an enemy could take control of them, whereas that would be a lot more difficult to do with a, uh, a human in the pilot seat. You know, that makes me think our hero, Mitch Rapp, in one of the more recent books, it's called Red War. And just to summarize the plot a bit, the Russian president, who is sort of an analog for Putin, is aging and gets a tumor diagnosis and basically ends up going off the deep end. And, And one of his more extremist generals convinces him to basically um, put troops on the border, which is something very relevant right now. But he amasses troops on the Belarusian border, the Ukrainian border. He actually goes so far as to take steps into the Baltic states. Again, fiction, right? Yeah. Fiction now, the Baltics are NATO countries. too. Exactly. Exactly. And the gamble he's taking there is, will the West stay true to Article 5? Will the U.S., after something like Afghanistan, put up the, the troops? Legally, they're bound to. But the question mm-hmm. he's playing but with will is they how, actually far, do it? how far will they push? Exactly. Exactly. He actually goes so far as to have the Russians move into Latvia. And one thing that our hero, Mitch Rapp, on the ground and his, his partners are able to do is work with the Latvian defense forces. And they have a plan that when their whole grid is taken down, they use old infrastructure that they yeah. unearth communications networks that are completely offline and still hardwired. And they have all these different mechanisms to still organize an evacuation and, and a defense, even offline without modern technology. They call in actually the old operators to run the switchboards with the plugs and actually put people in touch. Do you think countries in Eastern Europe are might be something to learn from to, because the cyber attacks that we see going on recently to take down the power grids are, it's real life. Yeah. I mean, you even look at the, look at the ending of the movie independence day, mm-hmm. all of the satellite and communi- 
education systems are taken out. So how do you reach people? Use old, old school short wave. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I just really wondered if, uh, you know, some states right now are considering backup plans that may require or rely upon old technology that people would, you know, dust it off, break it out. And that might be your only form of resistance. Yeah, there was, there was a, a short science fiction story that um, with a, a small glitches in them and they were able to introduce small, they were, they became non-functional and the, the side with, uh, you know, like, like earlier generation uh, weapons and, and, and aircraft and stuff was able to overcome them uh, because their, their, their smart weapons had gotten too smart for their own good. Right. By the way, one of the things I also wanted to say, if getting back to a white star and a red sky, some of those uh, incidences in the book were actually actually happened. There's one thing I mentioned in there about how uh, in one area of Ukraine, uh, the SS rounded up a bunch of children and sent them running out in the field and used them as targets for target practice. And you'd read that and you say, oh, that, that couldn't have happened. Yeah, that happened under the command of SS General Richelieu. Wow. He says, random, right? He says, well, let's have some sport. Let's huh. hunt some of these children. Huh. And uh, yeah, uh, the, the atrocities that went on were just absolutely mind boggling. Yeah, sometimes the history is is just way more shocking and disturbing what a twisted fiction writer could even come up with. And, you know, it happened. It really happened. And the thing I was going to say too, is I, I love doing the talks on, um, on the women pilots. I, I did talks like that for my daughter's uh, high school. And uh, they were really surprised that uh, a lot of the, you know, they, they were the same, the same age as the girls in the class. I said, yeah, you're 17, 18 years old. You would have been a pilot, a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot. And I was very fortunate to be, uh, to do a more formalized uh, military le lecture to the uh, uh, command people at uh, Fort Bragg on, uh, you know, the, the role of women in uh, combat. Uh, that was that was a really really special uh, a special thing for me to to go in there and go through all their security and stuff and be brought in and, and give this lecture to uh, you know generals and, and and colonels and all these people that were really high up into the military and and really uh, they really appreciated the, the information i was happy to happy to do that it wasn't long after that that they opened up more um uh, opportunities for women in the military so i think maybe maybe i had some uh, some effect on that hey that's great i wonder if that was around the time you hear of the first women passing you know the ranger training in the army and different programs like that that they were opening up yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure that I. I did this in. Uh, I want to say it was a 2016. Yeah, it's so important because again, from a, a history teacher's perspective, we always talk. You know, the role of women on the home front, but there was so much more that they were doing in other countries that we could have learned from. We could have embraced quicker. And then even in the Vietnam era, we talk about conscription, and my kids are always shocked to hear, you know, 21st century kids. What do you mean only boys had to sign up and put their name in the lottery and all this? And 
you know, other countries at that time were women, thousands of women fighter pilots. The Soviets have been doing that for what, a decade or two. Yeah, the Israeli army has uh, lots of women uh, combatants. Yeah, conscription there in Israel is is all people. Is that right? It's a mandatory thing that, you know, at a certain age you go in and, and you you serve. Right. And that's true. That's true now in in Russia. It's also true in Ukraine. Right. Because I have, uh, you know, I have, a, I have my, my second family that's now, you know, by marriage, my my Ukrainian family, and uh, and half of them are Russian anyway. That's why the whole thing about Russia and Ukraine it just boggles my mind because my wife's my wife's father's Russian, her mother's Ukrainian. Most of the people we knew had you know relatives that were Russian or Ukrainian, or they had people who were from Ukraine living in Russia. We had Russians living in Ukraine. And, and it, it's like, I mean, it's, it's like crazy. It's like the United States deciding to invade Canada. Right. It's wild. Yeah. I can only imagine what it's, what it's been like, you know, since 2014 for, for your wife and her family. So in the book though, you embrace that, I would say with a lot of little cultural lessons, the language, you know, you embrace a lot of uh, Russian and then at, for a point, I want to say how this happens, but our heroes, the two women, end up on the ground. They're kind of in the field in, what is that, eastern Ukraine, right? Working with the yep. villages and the villagers on a ground force. That actually, that's where the book, I think, definitely felt a bit more like one of the espionage thrillers we're used to reading here on the podcast. The way that the, the villagers were working with them and concealing them. And I don't want to say too much more, but the, the last third of this book, after being, you know, walloped with all these air battles and dogfights, it really shifts to a land battle and more of a, a behind-the-scenes kind of covert actions going through the countryside. Yeah, and a, and a quest for survival. Yes, yes. And the reliance on the community members for your survival. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to make, make sure, and I don't want to say too much about it, but in doing some of the research on the aircraft is... How badly a uh, how badly a P thirty nine could be damaged and, see, and still be controllable, things like that. Um, you know, it's interesting. It, I've often said this, like people like Tom Clancy, who wrote uh, Hunt for Red October. Those writers who were writing um, pre internet when they did their technical research, boy, my hat is off to those people because that is. Now it is, it's, it's so much easier to do this. Um, as a matter of fact, when I was writing one particular, when I was writing uh, the Das Bell book, there's a foot chase through Berlin, through part of Berlin, where uh, one of the bad guys is, uh, is trying to chase down um, this woman who he thinks is somebody else because she's wearing the other woman's coat. And so... I go on to Google Earth, go to Google Street View in Berlin, and actually I can create the path that they took, and I could actually see the buildings and, and the streets where they would have been in order to write this part. And I, it was like, you know, how how would it have been possible to do that, you know, right. 25, 30 years ago? You know, you're the second or maybe even third author we talked to who said, 
we're talking about technology, right? And how it changes things, how Google Earth yeah. has, has helped writers. And some others have said it's almost bittersweet because the ones who pre-COVID would have, they would have gotten to go to these places, or at least it would have been an excuse to take a vacation, you know? Yeah. Or a tax credit. Right. There you go. Tax deductible, uh, little trip right there. Yeah. Now, you know, it's like, well, I could have just gone on Google Earth to find out where that bench was at the, you know, at the bus stop on the corner of the street in a foreign city. So, you know, it's, it's helpful. Um, you can get more of that right. But, you know, hopefully we'll go back to the times where you can experience that. And I guess have you as a writer, it seems like your family connections, uh, your military interests. How else have you kind of put your own personal stamp on the characters that, that you put in your books? Um, you know, I, I, I tried to construct them a lot of, I read a lot of the biographies to the women, uh, combat pilots, the Russian women combat pilots, particularly Lydia Litviak, uh, Katya in the story is kind of based on Lydia, although Lydia's story is really very tragic. Um, she was an excellent combat ace, um, but she fell in love with her commanding officer and, um, he was killed right before our eyes. He was doing a uh, he was doing a low flying uh, maneuver uh, over their airfield, uh, training a new pilot. And he was just a little too low, and uh, he lost altitude. Uh, his wingtip caught the ground, mm. and that was it. It was over. Mm. And uh, nobody ever knows. Nobody knows for certain what happened to her. The last she was seen, uh, she was flying into a cloud uh, fighting against uh, four German 109s and she never came back. Wow. So that's incredible that the lengths you go to read books on these characters just to shape probably a few paragraphs of backstory on the ones that you create so that it, it really is, is realistic. Yeah. You know, I, I, I really think I did as much research on, on writing this uh, fictional book as I would have done to write a nonfiction um, article or even a nonfiction book. Uh, I, I must've had, Oh gosh. Uh, I must've had six books here for, uh, on the battle of Kursk. Uh, I had all my uh, stuff from my, uh, from my military history courses uh, I have books here on aircraft with all their specifications. And of course, thanks to uh, YouTube, I was able to actually watch training films of the P-39s, uh, how they were flown, how they were, they were maintained, what it was like to see one come in with a wheels up landing. You, I watched uh, air combat footage from gun cameras, from aircraft, what it actually looked like in battle. And then, um, you know, all of the dynamics, the maneuvers, the G-forces involved, um, you know, how an aircraft could, could escape uh, a pursuer, uh, et cetera. So all of that is put, into the, is put into the book. And what was really nice about it is I actually had an, I had a, uh, uh, an Air Force combat pilot tell me, he said, wow, he says, you nailed it. You got these maneuvers exactly right. That must feel good. You know, that must be like the validating factor that you can close the book and say, I did it. Oh, yeah. And uh, what one of the things I do at the end of the book is I made sure that I give credit to uh, a number of military historians uh, in the acknowledgments. I get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight military historians. Okay. Um, 
that whose books I read and whose parts I, I incorporated into the stories, etc. Well, Chris, all that hard work and research paid off with a great book. So glad you reached out uh, so that I, could, I too could read it and enjoy it. And we hope our listeners do the same. A White Star in a Red Sky by Chris Berman. Yeah, a White Star in a Red Sky can be found on Amazon, uh, of course, and uh, through uh, Barnes and Noble and other venues. And it's available as, a, as an ebook, either as a Nook or as a Kindle. Um, and it's also available in print. And I, I, I am very welcome for, for the support of readers who, who want to read the story and uh, uh, enjoy a, a good adventure along with learning some, uh, some real World War II history. Yes, indeed. Well, congrats on the book. And thanks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the uh, chit chat with Chris, uh, my co-host. I don't always get to geek out and get into history as much as I'd like. So it was a pleasure to do it with you. Thanks for joining. Okay, very cool. Thank you very much. All right, guys, we hope you enjoyed that interview. Really nice talking to Chris. Glad he was able to come on twice to, to, to give the interview. So yeah, next week we're gonna we have a pretty special episode for you. I'm, I'm excited for you guys to listen to this. Uh, we're gonna be giving you the first lines, so it's a little concept. We'll go into a little bit more when, once you hear it, but just be on the lookout for that. Uh, we need to thank our patrons, our special operator Sherry F, our special agents Kevin, Daryl, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Man, it's getting longer, and I like it. Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at mitchrappod.com or using Twitter and Insta at mitchrappod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Just a disclaimer, this podcast is not affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us the wonderful world of rap. And the music soundtrack is Guerrilla Tactics by Raphael Crooks.